Well, good morning. Good to see you today. Boy, it's good to see you here and uh, excited about being here. Excited because we're starting a brand new series this week and uh, we're calling it Q&A, Questions and Answers. Everybody's got questions. Did you know, and some of you parents out there will, will understand this, a study said that parents, that a typical curious child will ask 73 questions per day. Now, I said that at the early service and some of the young parents were saying That's, that figure's way low. But I don't know. But I do know this. Here's the interesting thing. Most of the time, and for the most part, parents have no answer to the questions they're asking. Been there too, haven't you, at some point or another. Did anybody remember, I don't know if you remember a time, uh, a television show. Now, I'm dating myself a little bit, but I know there's reruns. That, that said, kids say the darndest things. Have you all seen that? You remember Bill Cosby was the guy who asked the questions? And then somebody, again, at our first service told me, eh, but Art Linkletter was before that, right? And I'm saying, yeah, but I'm not that old. But actually, I am. Anyway, kids say the darndest things. I, I ran across a couple of questions that these kids were asked, and their answers are priceless. So I want to share them with you. First of all, Somebody asked, or one time Cosby asked one of the children. Now, remember these children are like what? Six to eight, something like that. Maybe five to eight, somewhere in that category. Here's some questions that he asked them. They're fantastic. First question, what's the story of Adam and Eve? And the child replied, one time there was God, and God made Adam, and then he made Eve out of a spare rib. Now, I don't know if that child pulled that off on purpose or not, but that was pretty good, I thought. Here's another one. The, the story, the, the communication, the line kind of continued, line of questioning. So the second question, well, whatever happened to Adam and Eve? To which the child said, God sent them to hell, then transferred them to Los Angeles. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But anyway, so we continue a little bit further to another child, staying on the biblical question. Uh, Cosby asked this question, what do we learn from the story of Jesus turning the water into wine? To which the child replied, the more wine we get, the better the wedding is. <laughs> well, I don't know, but sometimes children can say the darndest thing and ask the darndest questions. Now, I said all that because of this. Interestingly, the, when, when we sent out word to you folks and said, we're going to ask some questions that you want answered, and, and we'll select three questions from the questions you send in uh, to, to speak on, Interestingly, we had more questions come from our students than we did from adults. And I thought that was very interesting, and I'm glad that our students are asking questions. Now, here's why I like this series. A.J. mentioned earlier one of his favorite series. Mine, too, even though it's one of the most difficult we do. Here's why I like it. For so long, I've been an advocate that the church is asking questions or answering questions no one's asking. Right? No, let's be honest. Answering questions no one's asking. The questions people are asking, we don't touch because they are hot issues. Well, guess what? I think we can find answers to even the hot issues. And if we can persevere this morning, we're going to deal with one of those issues that was, by the way, raised by one of our students. What did the student ask? Question number one, this student asked, does God love people who are in hell? Does God love people who are in hell? Now, you might say, well, that's a pretty easy answer, Pastor Eddie. That's a, a quick two-minute um, answer. The answer is obviously yes. 
But I would suggest to you there are noted theologians who would say to you the answer is obviously no. Which is it? What is the answer? Well, you know I'm going to give you my thought, my opinion for what it's worth. Now, the interesting thing is that is, it is not clearly delineated in Scripture. I like to answer questions where there is a very clear thing where God says, Thou shalt come to church on Sunday morning. That's not in there, right? Uh, but, but what about this question? Here's what I do know. I do know that God is love. That's one thing I know. I know that God must love people even in hell simply because of his attribute. Not necessarily because of their actions or certainly not because of their actions. Not because of the fact that they are unrighteous. But here's what I know. God is a God whose attribute, or one of his attributes, is love. In fact, the Bible does this say this very clearly. It says, God is love, right? First John. It doesn't say that God loves. It doesn't say that God loved. I mean, it says that in other places. But the point of, of this passage is, it says God is. One of his basic attributes is that he is love. And so based on that, I believe his love permeates even our wickedness. In fact, the Bible says that he first loved us when we were alienated to him. That is, when we were his enemies. So God's love is not conditioned upon our behavior. And everybody said amen. Because here's the thing. Behavior is not always the best for us. Just like your love for your children is not primarily based upon behavior, right? Now, you may be displeased when they disobey you, but you love them. But here's my question. Why was that question even posed? Why, do we even, why was that on the mind of some student and probably some of you here today? Why do we even think about that? One young person asked this question, does it really matter? Because after all... Eternity is set in motion in that life. And why are we even asking the question? Well, maybe we ask the question because of some kind of theological debate. Sometimes people like to ask questions just to stir up the pot, if you will, theologically, right? And, and sometimes people just want to get into a debate. I'm not that person. I, I'm not going to debate with your spiritual or theological issues. However, theology does can, uh, mean something to me. Or maybe it's just curiosity. Maybe somebody's just curious. Does God really love people even when they're in hell? Or could it be, without playing too much psychologist here, could it be that somebody's wondering if somehow God loves people even when they're in hell makes hell a little bit better? And maybe that's because we know someone, a loved one, a friend, an acquaintance, by all, our, all definitions of our faith, may well be in hell today. Maybe someone that we know has rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we know the faith, and maybe we ask that question in hopes that somehow it's better. Maybe we ask the question because we're trying to find out. Excuse me just a minute while I fix this. Maybe we're asked the question because we're trying to figure out if somehow I missed the boat and derail my flight to heaven and wind up in hell myself, maybe God will still love me and things will not be so bad. So I want to address this question. 
And I want to talk to you about what I do know about hell and what I do know about God's love and what I do know about the tension that's created because not only is God love, but his great attribute is his holiness. God is love, but God is also holy. And the problem with the holiness of God is that the holiness of God can't bear with the sinfulness of man. So there's a tension created. Which is God? Is he love? Is he holy? Or can there be a resolution of that tension? And can somehow a holy God love people and a loving God find a way to preserve sinful people? I think that's a question that needs to be answered. I believe hell is a real place. The scripture tells us that. It's a real place. It's not the figment of our imagination. It's not something that we just think is here on earth. I know sometimes we have the expression, I'm going through hell on earth right now. And I understand there are tough days that make us think that way and talk that way. But let me tell you very carefully, hell is a very real place that goes beyond just bad days that occur on this earth. We know that hell is for eternity. We understand that. We know the scripture speaks about that. And we know, and listen to me carefully, we know that hell is the default destination of all of us. Now I want you to hear that. Because some questions arise out of this question. And one of the questions that arises out of this question is, well, if God loves people, and if he loves all people, even the wicked people, then why would God ever send anyone to hell? Ever asked that question? Ever been asked that question? Why would that be? I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that contains probably one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. And you probably know it, or at least heard it, or at least seen a guy with funny colored hair on TV putting it up before you. John 3.16. Simple verse, but very powerful. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Did you know that that is a powerful and incredible verse, but the verses that surround it are equally as important and helps us to get the picture of what I want to say today. So if you have your Bible and want to follow along, turn to John's Gospel, chapter 3. If you didn't bring it, bring it or don't have it on your phone or tablet, it'll be on the screen and you can follow along. John chapter 3. Now, I'm not going to start with verse 16. I want to go all the way back to verse 1, okay? And let's set it up because I think there's an important little nuance in chapter 1, in the first verse, that we need to see. John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, stop there just a moment because it's important that we understand that here is a man by the name of Nicodemus who comes to Jesus as a leader of the Jewish faith, the Jewish religion. He's a Pharisee. We know that the Pharisees were the religious conservatives, if you will. And we also know that because he was a Pharisee, he likely believed in resurrection. The Sadducees, the other part of that, remember the Pharisees and Sadducees? The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. But the Pharisees did. So he's obviously concerned about the life to come and what's going to happen after the resurrection. Now, I'm not reading too much into that. As we go along, you'll see it, okay? Look at verse 2. He says, This man, Nicodemus, came to him, that is Jesus, at night. Why at night? Isn't that odd? He comes at night. 
Some have suggested because he didn't want to be seen with Jesus, right? Jesus is the Galilean. He's the rabbi. He's the rebel, if you will. He is not the, he is not the poster boy for the religious elite. In fact, he's quite the opposite. But there's something gnawing at Nicodemus. And so he comes to Jesus at night, and he comes to him, and he makes a statement. Now, look at his statement. He said, Rabbi, that means teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Now, in typical religious fashion, maybe some of you would say preacher fashion, he's going to make a statement to build up to the question that he really wants to ask Jesus. Ah, we preachers have been known to embellish things before. I'll own that. He says, teacher, I, we know that you're from God. We, we know that nobody could do what you've done in all these miracles unless God's hand is upon him. But I want you to notice that before he ever gets to the question, the omniscient, that is the all-knowing God, already knows what he's asking, and he already gives him the answer. Look at the next verse. Very powerful. It says, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Well, there is a mystery there, isn't it? Jesus looked at him knowing what was on his mind, knowing that he was thinking about eternity and what would happen after resurrection, says Nicodemus. If you want to go to heaven, you must be born again. Now, if hell is the opposite of heaven, we know that what he's also saying is that, Nicodemus, if you don't want to be in hell, you must be born again. Now, what in the world does that mean? Now, many, most of you in the room aren't old enough to remember this, but when a man named Jimmy Carter was running for the presidency, some of you will remember that, and the rest of you should know that, history, right? American history. When Jimmy Carter was running for president of the United States, he made the fact or the comment, he made it known that he was a born-again Christian. And, and, and being, you know, watching the news at that time, I quickly realized that the secular world had gone mad. They couldn't understand, what in the world is he talking about? Born again? How could, same questions that Nicodemus had. Is he thinking that somehow he entered back into his mother? No, 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 he wasn't talking about that again at all. Here's what he was saying, and here's what I think Jesus is saying. You've got to have a change in your life. You've got to be reborn. You have to be a new creation. There has to be a significant change of direction. Now, here's why I think that's important, and that's not really where I want to dwell this morning, but I want to say that to say this. I think Jesus is teaching us here and saying to Nicodemus there, there has to be a critical change in your life. Why? Listen to me carefully. Because the default destination of our souls is hell, not heaven. Now that just might rock your world. Because there's too many people today who believe that our default destination is heaven, and we just have to hope we don't do anything bad enough to knock us off that train. When in reality, the Scripture says that our default destination is hell, and we need someone to, or something to lift us off that train of destruction. Does, does that make sense? 
You see, there's a difference there in the way we think. We must understand that our default destination, that is, if nothing changes in our heart and life, we are born as sinful people. In fact, Romans says all have sinned. A-L-L, all. All means all, and that's all it all means. It's everybody. We're all on the same road. And this road, this default destination, if you will, is spiritual separation from God. Romans says for the wages of sin is death. Separation from God. That's the just due. That's our reward. That's where we're headed. So please understand our goal is not to be good enough that we don't get knocked off that rail. Our goal is a new life. The changes our destination. And then our default destination becomes heaven. And we come through, the faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. I'll show you that in just a moment. Very important to understand. Now, having said that, we better now can flip down to verse number 14 and pick up reading. Listen to what it says. Jesus is speaking to him. Now he's going to answer the question more fully. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now that's a... Watch this. I don't have time to unpack that. You should go back into the Torah, the first four books of the Bible. uh, First five, I'm sorry. And, And as you look at those and you look at the story, you find that the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness. They get bitten by these poisonous snakes and are dying everywhere. And God comes to Moses and says, What are we going to do and remember what he said he said build a snake a a, a brass snake a brazen snake you put it on a pole and lift the snake and when you lift the snake up the people will be saved now Jesus says just as Moses raised this serpent in the wilderness and people were saved he said the son of man by the way that's that's our last question question about the Son of Man, but I can't go there. Son of Man must be lifted up. What's he talking about? He's given the first tease that we have here of the cross. The Son of Man lifted up on a cross. The Son of God lifted up on a cross. And he says, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Look at the next verse. For God loved the world in this way, He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There's our great verse. There's the one we hold to. There's the one we might say is the greatest verse in all of Scripture. And then I would argue, eh, look at the next one. It's pretty important too. Verse 17. For God, now it's a four, it's a connecting thought, this connecting thought about God Sending his son, lifting him up on a cross. Why? Because he loved the world and wants us to have eternal life. And then he says, verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That is so important. He said, God didn't send me here to condemn the world, but to offer salvation. You know why? Watch this. Because our default destination was already condemnation. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, sin came. And with that sin came death and destruction. And all of Adam's seed got on a train headed for demise. Headed for destruction. And Jesus said, so I've come to correct the course. 
I've come to offer something different. There's a great illustration of this. Now, you got to understand, illustrations break down somewhere, so please don't exegete this illustration. It's not perfect by any means, but it is a good illustration. How many of you like Batman movies? Anybody Batman fans? Batman Begins was one of the early movies, right? Uh, I'm not a huge Batman fan, but um, my buddy Chip gave me, gave me this illustration. I thought, man, this is really cool. He's a Batman fanatic. He finds Batman in everything. And so we were talking about this particular message, and he said, hey, did you ever see the scene in Batman Begins? Somebody, some of you may have seen it. Here's the scene. Let me set it for you. Batman and the villain are on a train, right? It's the end of the movie, and so we know we're coming to the climax. Batman and the villain are fighting it out on this train with all the pals, bangs, booms, and so forth. And they're going at it. Meanwhile, someone has destroyed the train tracks ahead. And so the train is headed for ultimate death and destruction. It is about to derail, and whoever's on that train is going to die. No question about it. And you know the scene. You've seen it in so many movies. And Batman and the villain are fighting back and forth, back and forth. One minute the villain's winning. One minute Batman's winning. The train, by the way, is getting closer and closer to the edge. We all know that whoever's on the train is going to die. Of course, we know in our mind that Batman's going to get off. Or is he? They're fighting back and forth. Finally, with the train end just in sight, Batman flips over the villain, has him pinned, and raises his hand with his knife. Here's what the villain said. He looked at him and said, You've won. Do your thing. Go ahead and kill me. Now, what I want you to see is what Batman's response was. Does anybody remember what it was? Here's his words. Batman looked at the villain with the knife in hand and his hand on his chest. He said this. He said, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. And immediately swung his trusty um, boomerang and out of the train Batman goes. And the villain falls to his death in the derailed train. <laughs> Why does that have to do with anything? It has everything to do with what I'm talking about. Our destination, our default destination is we're on a train. And it's headed for derailment. God's not going to kill us, but he doesn't have to save us. But the good news of the gospel that prevails over Batman is that Jesus has said, I want to save you. I'm here to save you. Let me provide a way off of this derailed train that is headed for disaster and put you on a safe track headed for peace, love, joy, and fulfillment. That's what we're talking about here. So what do we think about a God of love? He's given us the privilege of a choice, and yes, indeed, unfortunately, many that he loves is headed for a train wreck called hell. But he has offered us salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me read another passage to you. This is an incredible passage of scripture that shows how God saved attention. So how does God love us and yet preserve his holiness? If the Bible tells us that God is so holy that he cannot look upon sin and that we're all sinners, how is that tension solved? How can a God be a God of love and yet maintain 
his righteous dignity maintain his holiness how is that tension solved Romans chapter 3 listen to what the Apostle Paul writes an incredible passage of scripture he's began I mean let me again back up where it's where the, the context in the context he's telling us that everybody has sinned all have sinned and come short of the glory of God but in verse 24 he says this they that is all that have sinned they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption. Now, redemption is what? It is buying back. It is a purchase. So he's saying that these sinful people, that's you and me, who are on this destination default to hell in his holiness, God justifies us. But how does he do it? By the redemption that is in Christ. What does that mean, Pastor Eddie? That means that God can't just look at sin and wink. Are y'all okay with that? You know what I mean? Did you ever do this? I hate to confess this. Every time I confess something like this, I know that my, my status goes just a little bit lower with you guys. But it can't be much lower, so I'm just going ahead to tell you. I remember when my children were little, and now my grandchildren, they would do something wrong. I would tell them, now don't touch that thing on this table. You know what I'm saying? Don't touch that. You're going to break it. Don't touch it. And you know what? There would be times when they were just so darn cute that when they touched that thing on the table, I would turn my head. Come on now. Franz, you've done it. I know. A new grandbaby. You know, you turn your head. I'm not going to look because if I look, I'm going to have to get on to them. Or if I look, I'm going to laugh, right? Never will forget when my little daughter came in for a spanking. And, you know, I got relegated to that. And, you know, don't hate me over that. You know, I know we have different things today. But here's what we did. And, and, and she came in, and she had, she, she had her little uh, flexible pants, or expandable, whatever you call them. They were out here in the back about this wide, where she had obviously taken some towels and tissue, tissue and everything else and put them in there to, to cushion her. How do you do anything at that but look away? But, but listen to me carefully. God's love is so perfect and His holiness is so great that He can't just look away. He has to punish sin. The wages of sin is death. God is also truth. And when He speaks truth, even He does not go against that truth. So how am I going to punish sin? How am I going to make mankind that I love justified? How can I pull Him off of this train track when He, she is full of sin? How can I justify Him? Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Look at the next verse. It gets even better. It says, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice. It is Jesus as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his righteous restraint, or in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him... Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness the present at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare watch this and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus what in the world does that mean can I take a stab at it it's saying here's man on this derailed train 
default destination is hell. Full of sin, separated from God completely and wholly. How do I justify my holiness and my love? And God says, I know. I'll offer a sacrifice. I'll find a sacrifice to atone, to cover the sin of man. I'll find a sacrifice who I can punish instead of man. I'll find a sacrifice who can take the punishment of death for man. At first, in the Old Covenant, he used the blood of bulls and goats and sheep. Because you see, he declared that life is in the blood, and, and blood had to be shed. And so the, the, the blood that, that, that is conflicted with sin, that blood had to be changed. Something had to be changed. He offered idols or sacrifices in the Old Testament. And those sacrifices were given on a day called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The Jewish people still celebrate it. And on this Day of Atonement, when they brought the sacrifice to the altar, God would see the sacrifice and he would be pleased and his wrath would be rolled back for one year. His judgment upon their sin would be rolled back for one year. And then after one year, they would bring another sacrifice. And they would offer this lamb or this goat or this bull, and it would roll back the judgment of God for one more year. And then one day, Jesus showed up. He was a fully grown man at that point. He was God incarnate, that is, God wrapped in flesh. We're going to talk about week three. And when he came, John the baptizer looked at him from the river of Jordan he looked at Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the ram, the goat, the ox that rolls back sin one more year. This Lamb is the perfect sacrifice who will take away the sin of the world, who finally will lift man off of the destined, determined, sin-wrecked place and save his eternal soul. And so Paul says that Jesus became the sacrifice. And then he said this, so that he could justify men. Justify men before God. Justified. I learned it this way. I learned that justification, that justified means just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God sees me. That's how God sees us when we come to this place of faith in Christ, just as if I'd never sinned. How can that be? <laughs> Here it is. I got two minutes and a half to tell you. When Jesus is on the cross, he's paying your penalty, your sacrifice. He's sacrificing for you. I used to tell kids it this way. I used to talk about this to kids this way. I would say, hey, have you ever done something and you know you had to be punished for it? You know, you did something and you, whatever that punishment was, or sitting in a corner, or whether it's a, you know, a timeout, or whether it's a spanking, or whatever it might be, a punishment, or whatever it might be. Have you ever done that? And, and they'll say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So let me ask you this. Have you ever had your brother or sister go to your parents and say, you know what? I think I'll take that punishment for them. 
And they always reply, no way. Of course not. They're not going to take a spanking for me. My brother was not going to do that. In fact, he would try to figure out ways for me to get it for him. But that's exactly what Jesus did. He took the punishment for us. The punishment of sin is death. And separation from God. And Jesus on the cross says he breathed his last. He died on a cross. But before that, he said, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why this division? Why this separation? He's becoming the sacrifice for me. He's paying my sin debt. And here's what he said to me when I was nine years old. I didn't understand it all then. I just kind of accepted it by, by faith and, and, and just um, and what I did understand. But here's what he was literally saying to me. And here's what he's saying to you today. He's saying, listen, I'm the just one. You're the unjust one. But I'm willing to exchange my righteousness for your sin. That's why I died. And so you see, when Jesus died on the cross, <laughs> he was making a way for that tension between the holiness of God and the love of God to be settled. Because God could fully love you and offer you eternal life, but at the same time maintain the integrity of his holiness. I hope that makes sense. I, I've worked hard this week to try to figure out how to say it. Because it is so important. Do you understand your default destination is not heaven and you're just hoping you don't do anything bad to get knocked off of it? No, your default destination is hell and Jesus has come to lift you out of that train and put you safely into his eternal hands. And the truth is, the truth is you don't earn it. It's by his grace. You don't earn it. It's because he loves you in spite of who you are. You're saying, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. I don't care. I don't care. Here's what John, John, maybe his closest friend and follower, John wrote these words. John said that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. I don't care what you've done. God loves you. And he wants to give you eternal life. And he doesn't want to see you destroyed in a hell prepared for the devil and his angels. And he's saying to you, if you'll trust me today and trust me that I love you so much, I found a way to make you righteous and us exchange places. If you'll say yes to him today, that gift is yours. And frankly, that's why we're here today. And that's why I'm here every Sunday. And that's why I'm in the Bahamas. And that's why I'm in Kenya. And that's why I'm around the world. Because I want people to know the good news of the gospel. And the good news is there is a way off of the train before the wreck. But it's not your good works. It is the work of Christ, the atoning work, the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. Say, so how do I, 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 I believe that? I, I'm okay with that, Pastor Eddie. What do I do? Here it is. The Bible says we repent of our sins. That is, turn away from our sins. Why not? <laughs> How's that worked out for you anyway? We, return, we repent of our sins, 
And we place our faith in what we've been talking about. We place our faith in the atoning work, the atoning work of Christ on the cross. We place our faith in what God has said. We place our faith in the truth that Jesus loves us and died to save us. And if we'll receive what the Bible says is his gift to us, we have eternal life. Now here's what I know about a gift and I'm done. A gift is not mine until I receive it. No matter how well-intentioned your gift to me until I receive it, it's not, I'm not going to expect it, I'm not going to experience it. But I know this. God's extended his gift to you this morning, and you're not here by accident. And some student sent in an email to a few pastors in a little church and said, hey, I got a question about hell. And he did it because God knew that you were going to be here today and you needed to hear the message. So let me give you this takeaway and then I'm going to pray. I think it's so important that we understand God's love doesn't make hell any better. Does God love people in hell? Yeah, I think he does. God's very attribute in nature is love. Does that make hell any better? No, because the holiness of God brings consequences to sin. And one of those consequences is his wrath and his judgment. So don't count on. What's the purpose? Don't count on hell being better. Because somebody decided God loves us more even then. My advice to you today, my plea to you today, if ever I pled with you from anything on this stage, my plea for you today is that today you say yes to his invitation of grace. And then the answer becomes a mute point. It really doesn't matter because I know I'm safe in the arms of God. Pray with me, would you?